Ephesians chapter 2, we'll, uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 down through uh, 16 this morning. Before we read uh, this passage and consider it, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you've been uh, faithful not only to give us your word, but also to give us the opportunity to study it and consider it and, and have your spirit uh, penetrate it deep into the recesses of our hearts and souls. So thank you for the privilege of week in and week out being able to uh, spend time with it. And we pray that you would miraculously show up, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts, that you would show us what it is you'd have us to know, that you'd form us into the image of Christ more and more, and even today, so that none of us would leave here unchanged, but that we'd all walk out here differently in our hearts than we walked in, so that we can have uh, godly motivations, uh, motivations which are loving and caring of others and loving of you above all, rather than self-centered. So, so cut us, Lord, where we need to be cut. Heal us where we are broken, and do all this to glorify your great name through Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Ephesians 2, we're going to look at verses 14 to 16, but we'll read uh, verses 11 uh, down down to 16. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Thus far, God's word to us this morning. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. Uh, Beloved brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone with us here uh, this morning, uh, for most of you, you know this is fairly simple. All the sins in the world are in the church. I don't know if you're aware of this, but every sin that we see going on in the world is also in the church. A lot of times we don't realize it is. And one of the sins that's in the church, which is in the world, is the sin of division, strife, uh, jealousy, battles, fights, quarreling, that sort of thing. The church is not filled with people who naturally get along, is another way of putting this. God fills the church as he calls people to himself with the people he wants, not necessarily with the people that we want. So the church is filled with people who socially, who economically, who educationally, intellectually would never have anything to do with each other outside of the church. Never have likely wouldn't don't even like each other, have no desire to hang around each other. And God calls all of us from different backgrounds, puts us in the body and basically says, get along. And I'm going to tell you how you can get along. And he did this in history past with Jews and Gentiles who hated each other's guts, who were uh, happy to be killing each other and doing war with each other, brought them both inside the church and said, now I'm, I'm telling you the Gentiles have been brought near. You're both in the same body. Now you need to learn to get along. And if you can do it with Jews and Gentiles, then you can do it with anybody else in the church. 
The church would be an easy thing to be part of if all we had to do was relate to Jesus. Can you imagine that? So God calls us to himself and says, you don't even have to be part of a church. You just have to have a relationship with me. Don't worry about other people. That'd be easy because Jesus is perfect, right? He's really easy to love. <laughs> he, he never lets us down. He never gossips about us. Our Lord Jesus Christ is perfect in every way. But what God does is he says, you not only have to relate to me and to my son, you not only relate to the, each member of the Trinity, but you also have to relate to these other people that I've called to. And that's where the challenge comes in because we don't look like each other. We have different preferences. We have different backgrounds, etc. And so the challenge for us is learning how to get along well in the church and love other believers in the church. If you've not been a Christian long enough, this may sound like a foreign concept, but give a little bit of time and you'll find out just how difficult it can be to learn to love people uh, who are of the same faith as you, who think radically different than you. I remember we were uh, uh, conducting a, a congregational meeting in Springfield and and it was a meeting that, that went well for whatever reason. And people were really kind and loving and, and uh, spoke highly of one another, which was typical. But this was just a really uh, above and beyond uh, uh, the usual meeting as far as kindness goes. And some numerous people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, this is, this is really different. We, we always invited our visitors and regular attendees to attend all the congregational meetings. And a few of them came up and said, we, we really like this. We're actually thinking about joining because you guys have learned to get along. And in other churches where we had meetings there was always somebody yelling and screaming and always really fights going on uh, inside the church. And I told him, well, you, you stick around l- long enough, you'll see plenty of that here as well. But, but the point is this, beloved, when we get along, when we treat each other kindly, it, it, it provides a witness, not only for believers, but for non-Christians too, who come in and say, how can you people get along? You're so different. You have rich and poor, you have educated and uneducated. You have healthy and you have really sick. You, you have different skin color. You have different everything. How do you get along? And we're going to find out in this passage in front of us exactly how it is possible that Christians can get along. And I, I just want us to notice a few things out of the passage, verses 14 to 16. So here's, here's the main idea. All Christians are spiritually united together with one another. All Christians are spiritually united together with one another. That spiritual unity is true. It is the case. I want us to ask two questions or answer them. Who creates this spiritual unity? And then how is this spiritual unity possible? How is, how is it created? So who creates it? And then how does Jesus create it? So obviously, who creates this spiritual unity? Jesus creates it. Take a look at verse 14, if you would. For, catch this, he himself, Jesus, he's our peace, who has made both who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, catch this again, in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Spiritual unity in the church is what the, what the Apostle Paul is saying is spiritual unity in the church is only possible by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one, beloved, who makes this possible. Take Jesus out of the equation, and there is no spiritual unity in the church. Inject Jesus in the equation, and there is the possibility of spiritual unity. It actually is accomplished positionally, or really and truly. We actually have spiritual unity, and then we're called to live like it as well, which is a different story. But Jesus creates spiritual unity inside the church. Now, this may not seem like a very important thing to to us. Maybe our lives have been fairly peace-filled, but the world is filled with peace lovers, beloved. 
people who want genuine peace, who want really good relationships. And I think the best example of this is maybe John Lennon's song, Imagine. Some of you might know it. Um, here's just a few of the lyrics. Imagine no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. What John Lennon really tapped into in the 60s tapped into, you know, make, make love, not war, peace. We want cessation of war. We want people to get along. Is something that's true for every human heart. We all want this, don't we? Peace with each other, nations to be at peace with each other, all of our relationships to be peaceful. We're, we're not just not killing each other, but we're actually positively getting along really well. But here's the truth. That no matter how hard men and women in the world outside of the church try to accomplish this, they can never accomplish it. People are always at war with one another. Nations will always be raging against one another. That's not going to stop until Christ comes again. But in the church of Jesus Christ, God wants it different. This is part of what it means when we're called out of the world into the church. God says, formerly you were at war with each other. It made sense. You hated people. You were hating one another and hated by others, Titus 3. But now we come into the church and we have to love one another and we learn to live at peace with one another. I want to pause for just a moment and consider something. If Jesus Christ is the only way that peace is possible in the church or in the world as a whole, that means that Christ has to be central in every single one of his churches. He has to be the issue. He has to be the one proclaimed. He has to be the one that people are coming to worship, to praise, and to deal with. He has to be the cornerstone, the stumbling block, the rock of offense, the one that is put before everyone. Where Jesus is prominent, where our souls are satisfied by him, where we love him and grow in his likeness, peace is very possible. Very possible. Where Christ is lost, peace is not possible. Because when Jesus is replaced with anything else, that new issue becomes the issue. And then it doesn't matter, are you a Christian? Is is my identity found in Christ? Do you believe in Jesus? But the issue is now, what do you do on Sunday? And then you have polarization right there. The issue is, what's your favorite Bible translation? The issue is, how do you dress? The issue is, well, how much money do you make? I mean, Millions of issues, beloved, whatever the case may be, given our geographical context, every single city has different issues that are going on. All church contexts do as well. But put Christ at the center and we can have unity around him because that's the central issue. I'm saved by his blood and now we can relate to every single other believer because we have him in common. So beloved, Christ is the way the church unity can happen. Without him, it's not even possible. Now, take a town like Pella where there's a church on every corner. I think there might be more churches per capita than even Springfield where I came from before. What often happens when we, when we go to look for joining a church, et cetera, or want to be part of a church is this. We say, do I like the people here? Do I get along with the people here? Which is a valid question. But, but here, and then our bubble can oftentimes be burst when we, when we do become part of a church and we find out, well, these people aren't all that I thought they were cracked up to be. They have problems. Now we have issues. We have divisions. We have fights. How do we work through this? Here, here might be a better way of looking at it. Is Christ present? Is the focus of the people that I'm about ready to fellowship with and join with, is their focus Jesus? Do they love him? Do they, are they enamored with what he's done for them? 
Do they love the good news about him? Is their body life built around this fact that Jesus lived perfectly for them and they know they can't measure up to God's standard, but Jesus did? That he died in their place so they're humbled, our pride is removed, and they're content to just be found in Jesus Christ rather than to say, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law, blameless, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. Where are these people at? What do they love? It's very important, beloved. And it's, it's very, here, here's a, here, let's bring it really, let's, let's bring it home. If Christ is central in hope, we can be unified. If he's gone, forget about it. If Christ is the issue, if he's the one that we're, that we're talking about, that we're good newsing constantly, week in and week out, and having our hearts warmed to God by, then we can have unity. But if Christ is gone, it's over. Something else will take his place. The void will be filled. And that new issue will create huge divisions in the church body. It happens everywhere. So, so the goal for us is to keep Christ central. He's the one who provides the unity. Now, how does he create this spiritual unity? How is this created? Just three things I want to notice. Number one, by breaking down the dividing walls of hostility. Number two, by creating one new man. And then three, by reconciling us to God and each other through the cross. So those are the three ways that the church can be spiritually unified or is spiritually unified. First, take a look at it with me, if you would, breaking down the dividing walls. Uh, again, verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So notice it says he, the, the, the dividing wall was broken down in his flesh. So at some point during his earthly ministry, in his flesh, in the days of his flesh, at some point during his earthly ministry, this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was broken down, was destroyed. So now we're, our minds are tuned to the Gospels. Where in Jesus' ministry, in his flesh, where did this happen? What did this look like? And the dividing wall of hostility actually gives us sort of a portrait of the temple complex. So think temple complex, most holy place. High priest goes in once a year and not without blood. Holy place, the priest can go in there. Then you have the court of priests. Then you have the court of the Israelites. Then you have the court of the Gentiles outside of that, the court of the women right there. You have the court of the Gentiles outside, and there's a wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Israelites, which tells the Gentiles, you're not welcome. You're not an Israelite. And it tells the Israelites, we're better. That was the attitude they got from it. We're better than the Gentiles. We can come closer to God than they can. And what Paul is saying here is that this dividing wall of hostility, Jesus Christ actually broke down. Well, how did he break it down? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Well, okay. So Jesus didn't go to the temple and with a sledgehammer just start breaking down this wall. <laughs> he broke down this wall, this barrier, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this is a reference to all the ceremonial and the civil laws of the old covenant. The laws that put a division between Jew and Gentile, that put a division between Israel and all the other nations. And what he's saying is this, when Jesus Christ hung on the cross just outside Jerusalem where the temple is located, and he cried out, and the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, the dividing wall of hostility at that very moment is done. 
what, what's amazing about what took place on the cross when this, when this temple of the curtain torn in two is that all the people in Jerusalem weren't killed immediately because they're now right in the presence of God. And if the high priest goes in wrongly, he's finished. And yet the temple curtain torn in two and everybody in there is still alive. That means that now there's access to God that we can go in. And at that very moment, God is saying something about the temple. You don't need this anymore. All the ceremonial laws, all the differences between Jew and Gentile are finished. Now it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. In fact, in Christ, there is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no male nor female, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free. It doesn't matter anymore. It's not important. So Christ, in order to bring Jew and Gentile, broke down this wall so that here's another way of putting it. The temple is worthless, useless, of no value anymore, period, end of story. And the Jews didn't quite understand that. And I, one, as one person put it, AD 70, when Titus and the Romans walked in and destroyed the temple as God's way of saying, <clears throat> why didn't you get the message? <laughs> the curtain torn in two, you don't need this anymore. And since you haven't taken care of it yourself, I'm going to take care of this for you. The temple is worthless it's useless. There's no more dividing wall. There's no more court of Gentiles. There's no more court of Israelites. Now the two are one and they are brought together. So Jesus abolished it when he died. Now, the overwhelming message then of Jesus' death on the cross is this. You don't need the temple anymore. You Jews are no closer than the Gentiles but now you're one body and you've all been brought together uh, by me. Uh, why does it matter? Here's what was going on in many of the churches. Jewish Christians were saying to Gentile Christians, if you want to become a believer, you have to become a Jew first. So you get circumcised and then you can believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. What, they, what the Jews were not saying is you Gentiles can go all the way in. You can become Christians from, you can go from Gentile to Christian. Jews could go from Jew to Christian, but the Jews are saying, if you want to become a Christian, you Gentiles, you have to go to a Jew first and then to a Christian. In other words, you have to obey some of the Mosaic law and then you can come and to believe in Jesus and then you'll be saved. And Paul's saying, plague on both your, plague on that house. Not at all. That's not the case circumcision doesn't matter. We addressed that last week. All the Mosaic laws, as far as ceremonial and civil, they don't matter anymore. The moral law does. But all this stuff that separated Jew and Gentile formerly doesn't matter anymore. Gentiles, you can go straight to being saved. You don't have to become a Jew first. That's how Christ broke down this wall. There's no more Jew. There's no more Greek anymore. Beloved, we don't have these kind of walls, right? We don't have separation between Jew and Gentile, at least probably not in Pella, Iowa, and Iowa in general. But, but we have plenty of middle walls and partition that hurt fellowship and church unity. In Paul's day, he's trying to bring Jews and Gentiles together. In our day at Hope in Pella, what are some of the issues that we have to overcome in order to bring different factions together? Here's one, money. James 2 says, right, if a rich man comes in, he's got a, he's got a Rolex on. He pulled up in a Bentley. And he's dressed in an Armani suit, maybe a higher end than that. And he walks in. It's so easy to favor somebody like that, isn't it? And James says, don't do it. That can, we can actually have middle walls of partition in the church. The rich hang out with the rich and the poor hang out with the poor. And there's a wall between them. 
and what Christ has done by becoming poor, saying you're all one and the same. Rich people, just you have a low position because your riches are a stumbling block. Poor, you have a high position. You're going to be rich in heaven. So, so learn to get along. Gender. Sometimes churches are divided, male and female. Still goes on to this very day. Men are more important. We'll say, we'll say one set of churches. Women are more important. We'll say another. And Paul will say you're both equally important. Stop it. Political divisions. Some churches will say, well, if you're Republican, you're in, or others will say, if you're a Democrat, you're in. Jesus said, why does this matter? Churches should be filled with Republicans, with Democrats, with independents, you name it. People of all political uh, thoughts and persuasions. Beloved, they shouldn't be middle walls of partition dividing us. here's, Here's an interesting one that's found in almost every church. The dividing wall between doctrinal people and relational people. Doctrinal people and relational people. Sometimes those are the people that inside the church don't really get along well. They don't know how to get along. We rented a building from Grace United Methodist in Springfield, and and they, they got a pastor that, that the church as a whole really didn't like. And uh, uh, pastors are appointed uh, in that in that congregation, so they didn't have a choice in the matter. And when she came, she had a real liberal agenda. And what was interesting is all the doctrinal people left the church, and the relational people stayed. And nobody could really make sense of this when they looked at it from the outside. Why are, why are some of you putting up with this? Like horrible stuff being taught. No good news at all. Just a liberal agenda. When you, when you think of a, literal, a liberal political agenda is what was being pushed. And the doctrinal people couldn't understand why they would stay. But the relational people were thinking, well, of course we'd stay. I've been in the same church loving these same people for 60 years. Many of them were in their 80s, and been, they were born and raised in that church. They say, we're not going to leave. The relational people got it, so they stayed. But oftentimes, these two sets of people don't get along inside the church. The relational people are thinking, why are you so fired up about this, about this various doctrine, this, this little peccadillo? Why are you so fired up about it? Don't, we love each other, right? Like, let's, let's get along. And, and when they go into churches, they don't even really care what the pastor says, what the theology is. Do the people love each other? Because I'm going to build relationships here, and that's good and right. And the doctrinal people can walk in, and people can be spitting in each other's faces and yelling and screaming. All they care about is, what's your, what's your confession of faith? That's all I want to know. <laughs> what do you preach? Where do you stand regarding to the Bible? I don't care if you hate each other. I don't care if you get along at all. Just what do you teach? And beloved, Christ brings both together in the same church and says you can actually learn from one another. You doctrinal people can learn to be nice. And you relational people, you can actually grow in Christ and learn that there's more to it than just loving other people. Like, like what you learn can actually change your life and, and for the better. So, so we grow and sharpen each other. But beloved, there are real walls of division in the church. Every church we're part of, there, there's walls in hope, whether we're, avail, whether we're aware of it or not. So the challenge for us is to come together to figure out what they are, to break them down. They have been broken down already in Christ. Well, not only does Jesus break down these middle walls, but he creates one new man. So negatively, he breaks down the wall and makes fellowship and unity possible. But unless one new man is created, one new person, one new body, unity hasn't really happened yet. In other words, you don't call the stopping of firing bullets peace. 
I know the Romans, what, what was their Pax Romana? We, we made a desert and called it peace. Is that the saying? They wiped everybody out. Nobody's shooting anymore. And we call this peace. That's not peace. That's just fear. And there's nobody left to kill each other anymore. Beloved, what, what Jesus does is not just break down this dividing wall so that the Gentiles can stand on one side and the Jews on the other and say, well, there's no more wall in between us, but I can't stand your guts and I'm not going to go hang out with you. But he actually brings the two together in the same body and they start intermingling with each other. That's the unity that's going on here. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the, the Christmas truce. I think it was 1914, World War I, um, where Germans stopped firing at the British and the French. And for a, a brief moment, the commanders were, were ticked. The generals were upset about this when they found out about it. But, but the soldiers on the battlefield away from home had this common unity. They, actually, they didn't just stop firing at each other, even though they did that. They put down their weapons, so the dividing wall is broken down now. But they actually got out of their trenches and started hanging out with each other. Some were playing soccer. They were exchanging cigarettes and cigars and chocolates or whatever they might have had. There was unity there. They were in the same boat, weren't they? None of us want to be here. We're all away from our families. None of us want to be laying in a mud trench, do we? Christmas, it's winter out, it's cold. (laughs) This isn't the life that we designed when we grew up. So we have this in common. There's a unity. Beloved, that's the kind of unity created by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. None of us chose to be in this, did we? None of us chose to be in the church. God called us into it. We have this in common. Not only has the war stopped between us and there's no more reason to fight, but we've got this great common denominator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can talk about him endlessly. We can talk about his blood. We can rejoice that he would save people like us. We can be delighted in this. It's amazing. So there's this peace. It's not just that war has stopped but that it's Jews and Gentiles. It's the rich and the poor. It's the doctrinal and the relational. It's the intellectual and the people who don't have any education intermingling in the church and more than that, loving each other, serving each other, being a brand new creation, something that's never been seen before in history and something that you can't find anywhere else in all the world. People of all different positions loving each other. So that's the new man that was created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther uh, King Jr. actually said in one of his speeches called The Ethical Demands for Integration, he said, a desegregated society that is not integrated leads to physical proximity without spiritual affinity. It gives us a society where men are physically desegregated and spiritually segregated, where elbows are together and hearts are apart. It gives us physical togetherness and spiritual apartness. What he's getting at in his day was, look, you can actually desegregate the South. That's fine. You can desegregate it. But until we actually learn to love one another, there's not going to be true integration. Beloved, Paul's talking about the same thing in the church. The dividing wall is hostility is broken down. There's no reason to fight anymore. But it's more than that. It's not just stop fighting. It's learn to love each other. Learn to get along in the church. Intermingle with each other spiritually have our hearts united with one another. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing by his Holy Spirit working in us. And then the third thing that Jesus does to bring warring factions inside of his own body together is found in verse 16, reconciling us to God and to each other through the cross. So verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So notice the order of operations here. 
in order to create unity in the church, spiritual unity, real unity in the church, God first reconciles us to himself. Our vertical relationship with God affects our horizontal relationship with other people. Direct correlation. When we are reconciled to God, have peace with God, have made our relationship with God, have settled the matter as it were, because we've been reconciled to God by his grace. When that happens, now horizontally, we can be at peace with one another. Catch that. Might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, warring factions, rich and poor, whoever we don't like, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we're reconciled to God. Now the hostility between the two factions is over. It's finished. So how does the cross of Christ break down the hostility? First, it reconciles us to God. If we know peace with God, we can actually have peace with other people. We tend to treat people like we think God treats us. Think about that. We tend to treat people like we think God treats us. Look, if you think God is out to get you, if you think God is your enemy, if you think God is out to condemn you and you have no peace in your relationship with God, then you will be condemning to others. You will have no peace in your relationship to other people and you will treat them just like you think God treats you. There's no way around it. How about this, beloved? How many of us wrestle with this? We're harsh with other people around us. We're quick in our anger. We're quick to speak, to condemn, to judge. If you listen to us, you'd think, man, this person hates everybody, doesn't like anybody. Stop and think about this. If that describes you, what's your view of God's view of you? How do you think God views you? Do you think God is harsh and condemning of you? Do you think God genuinely loves you? Do you think God is pleased to have you as a child of his? Do you think God made a mistake? You think he regrets having established a relationship with you? What if I told you this, that God, before you were even born, before the world began, he decided he wanted, wanted, desired to enter into a relationship with you when you were a horrible mess, seeing you in your sin. What if I told you he not only desired it, but he decreed that he would make a way possible to fix the gap between you and him? that you and I created, the gap we created. What if I told you that Jesus Christ didn't begrudgingly come to do his Father's will, but volunteered to do it because he loves us and loves his Father? What if I told you that God sings over you with his love? He's quieted Zephaniah by his love for you. What if I told you that God sits in heaven satisfied that you're redeemed? Will that change the way you treat other people? Of course it will. Because if you've been loved perfectly by God, if your heart's been satisfied with, you know what? God doesn't think he made a mistake in saving me. God is actually delighted to have saved me. He didn't have to do it. The fact that he signed up for this voluntarily of his own will tells me that he wanted, he wants me. Beloved, that's incredible. Have you looked in the mirror lately? Have I looked in the mirror lately? God wants, <laughs> he wants us. He wants people like us. Have you, have you looked at your track record? Have I looked at my track record? It's not a great one. He wants us. He's delighted in us. Beloved, if that would melt your hearts and your reconciliation to God, the restoration of fellowship, no longer an, a, a relationship of enemies, but of friends, if that changes your heart, then you can befriend other people. You can treat them with the same grace with which you've been treated. 
But until that happens, it's not really going to be possible. You're going to be harsh and condemning and treat other people like you think God treats you. So, so rest your heart in that, melt your heart. But here's, some, here's another way that the cross brings people together. It demands forgiveness. Look, some of the problems in the church, especially among Jew and Gentile, think about this for a moment. Jews, long track record, century after century of Gentiles killing them. We're going to wipe you off the land. It's still going on today. Long history of it. Gentiles, long history of being snubbed by the Jews. You're not good enough for us. You're dogs. How do you bring that together in the church? Forgiveness. I forgive you for the way you treated my grandpa. I forgive you for the way you treated my dad. I forgive you for the way that your grandpa treated my grandpa and I treated you. We're going to try and make a go of this now. Forgiveness, letting it go. The cross screams it, beloved. It screams it. What does the blood of Jesus scream? It's a, it's, a, it's a better scream than the blood of Abel, right? The blood of Abel cries out revenge, payment, justice. And the blood of Christ screams out forgiveness. Let it go. So, beloved, how do people in the church get along? Number one, you've got to know God's forgiveness. You've got to know it. You've got to know that all of your sins are forgiven. How many of us are sitting here right now thinking God hasn't forgiven me of this yet? I hope he does someday. If I get my act together, God will forgive me. What if I told you that right now your sins are forgiven, that Christ paid them all? They're really forgiven like God is not going to hold them against you at all right at this very moment. Would that affect how you forgive other people? How many of us are holding grudges against other Christians right here in hope? against Christians of other churches. Where we're doing that, spiritual unity isn't possible. It's not going to happen. So beloved, the cross screams forgiveness, screams let it go. God let your debt go. Now let their debt go. Just do it. It screams it. And then one more thing. The cross creates humility. It creates humility. So many fights in the church are created by what? Us thinking, I'm right I've got to have my way. My opinion is the only right opinion. And then you read about Jesus. So many of us have fights created in the church because we think, I want to be given my due. I'm important. I'm valuable, etc. And then you read about Jesus, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. Can you imagine that? Jesus in heaven, the Son of God, the most valuable person in the world, right next to the Father and the Holy Spirit, all of equal glory and value. He didn't think that staying in heaven was something that, he could, that, that was worth holding on to. But he actually came down. If anyone's do something, it's Jesus, right? He comes down and gives all that up. Taking the form of a servant, but it goes farther. Human form, the form of a servant being born in our likeness, and he not only dies, but he dies the death of a cross. He gives up all of his prerogatives, said, I'm going to do it my father's way. Beloved, that cha- that's a game changer for all of us. So when we think, I've, you know what? I've got to have my way in the church. Nobody's praising me for my gifts. I need to have my due. We look at Jesus. Did he get his due? Was he due going through God's eternal wrath against our sin? No, that's our due. We were due that. He voluntarily humbled himself. And then all of a sudden, when we, when we realize what Christ did for us, we can go out and we can make sense of Philippians 2, 3 to 4, the verses right before it. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Why? Because Jesus counted us more significant than himself. 
Beloved, if Jesus counted himself as significant as he was, he would have never come down. God could have saved a trip from heaven. Christ counted us and his Father's glory more significant than he did his own personal comfort. And he entered into our mess to deliver us out of our mess. So now we can love each other, right? Because we're humbled by this. Who am I? Who am I to think I have to have my way every time? Well, none of us should think that, but oftentimes we do in the church. There was a, one story, then we'll close. There was a, a church leader who was, was in a, 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 a meeting of leaders, and they were talking about a building fund, and he was adamantly opposed to the building fund, didn't want to go through with it at all, didn't think it was wise use of the church's money. And so he voted against it, but everyone else voted for it. So it came to the congregation, and the, the word went out that, hey, we're going to do a building fund drive. And uh, who's going to sign up for it? And how much can you donate? And this person who was totally opposed to it was the first one to stand up and say, I'm going to give $5,000 to it. And afterwards, everybody was really confused. Like, you were so opposed to this. What? Why are you standing up and doing this? He said, you know what? He said, at the end of the day, this, this is bigger than me. And I may not like this. This may not be my preference. But I need to jump on board with this. Because if everybody else is for this, then how do I know that I'm not wrong? Humility, beloved not having to have our own way, modeled in the Lord Jesus Christ, coming down for us, that, that should change everything in our hearts about how we love one another, how we relate to one another. Let's pray.